listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Scripture lesson this morning is from Genesis 2, verses 4 to 7. It's probably on one of the fastest Bible lookups if you want to find it on page 2. Genesis 2, 4 to 7. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth, and no herb of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no one to till the ground. But a stream would rise from the earth and water the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man from dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. Hello again, everyone. Good morning. It's really great to be back with you today. I was on vacation uh, last week. My wife had to fly out to California for work, so rather than staying home uh, with the kids all by myself, I took the week off, uh, put the kids in the car, and we went down to visit grandparents in Pennsylvania, which was not motivated by self-preservation on my end, in the slightest. <clears throat> yeah. But uh, the kids and I had an awesome time. Aaron had an awesome time. Everyone's back uh, safely. Um, and it's great to be back. We're in the midst of a sermon series. Uh, this was a series we kicked off on Easter Sunday, exploring themes like resurrection, new creation, and the Christian hope. Uh, last time we were together, so two weeks ago when I was here, we looked at John 1. We talked about the significance of the word becoming flesh, how in Christ God enters fully into our experience in order to redeem it. Uh, We talked about some really big ideas. We talked about incarnation, how much of religion exists in the world of the abstract, what the Greeks called logos or the word, if you remember that from two weeks ago. But in Christ, our faith takes on flesh. As a people who live in the wake of the resurrection, salvation isn't about escaping this material universe as much as it's about an invitation to partner with God in the redemption of all things and to be transformed ourselves in the process. Now, we wrestled with a lot of big ideas last time, but today I want to get a bit smaller. I want to zoom in a little bit and talk about how some of this stuff affects us. Specifically, I want to talk about bodies and souls. Uh, Last time we opened with a question, what do we hope for? But the question I want to wrestle with today is what are we made of? Like literally, how do we understand our own makeup as human beings? What are our parts? What are the pieces that come together to make this, (laughs) us? This is a really important question when we think about things like resurrection and new creation because we're essentially asking, what is it that's being saved? Not who is saved or what does it mean to be saved, but what is being saved? What is God saving? Is God just after a piece of us or does God want to save the whole thing? 
Is the hope of salvation only relevant to our immaterial soul, or is there hope for our bodies as well? Now, the way I was always taught to, to answer this question, what are we made of, it looks something like this. Human being equals body plus soul. The idea here is that we're made of two parts. You've got a physical body, and you've got an immaterial soul. And salvation, at least the way I learned about it in church as a kid, is primarily about the soul. We save souls. If someone's ever asked you a question like, if you die tonight, do you know where you'll go? They're asking about your soul, right? Because the, the body half of that equation is, is easy. You're going in the ground. <laughs> but we talk about salvation of the soul. And come to think of it, I've been in the church pretty much my whole life. I don't know if I've ever heard salvation applied to our bodies. Like, not once. Now, Christianity, spoiler, spoiler alert, we didn't invent this idea. This idea has been around for millennia, um, but we picked it up specifically from a movement called Gnosticism. Who here's ever heard of Gnosticism or Gnostic Gospels? Oh, wow, it's a lot more hands than I was expecting. You guys are well-read. It's a smart congregation. <clears throat> Gnosticism is a religious movement that sort of grew up alongside Christianity. There was um, a lot of overlap in the early years of the church. The two would eventually part ways, um, but in those first few centuries, the formative years of the church, there were a lot of Gnostic Christians and Christian Gnostics. And even though the two split, a lot of Gnostic ideas have kind of hung around and are deeply embedded in our Christian consciousness. And one of those ideas is this hard split between bodies and souls. Gnostics believed that the spiritual realm was inherently good and the physical realm was inherently bad or broken. It's the same split we talked about last time between word and flesh, logos and sarx, if you remember any of that, but applied to like the atomic level, to the human person. Gnostics believe that human beings were made of two parts, a physical body and an immaterial soul, but the soul... That's our true self. The soul is eternal. The soul longs for what is good and pure, but there's a problem. The soul is held back by the body. This body, which is dirty and limited and passing away. Some Gnostics even referred to the body as the prison of the soul. It's as if our souls are trapped inside of our bodies, longing to escape. And salvation in this perspective is all about fleeing the body so that the soul can be free. And I just want to acknowledge right up front that for a lot of us, that's a very attractive idea. There's a reason this way of thinking has hung around for so long for many of us, whether due to age or sickness or some sort of physical ailment, it really can feel like our bodies are a prison. It feels like our bodies have betrayed us, turned on us. Our soul longs to do the things we used to do, but our bodies just can't do them anymore. 
And if that's you, I want to acknowledge up front that there's no shame in feeling that way. It's okay to feel that way. Human beings really do long for the eternal. It can be really hard to appreciate our physical existence when our bodies start shutting down. But this hard separation between body and soul, any sort of denigration of the body and elevation of the soul, it's not the only solution to this problem. And it can actually lead us into some dangerous territory. Now, in in the ancient world, Gnosticism kind of tended toward two extremes. On the one hand, some Gnostics embraced hedonism. If the soul is what really counts, and the body is inherently bad anyway, well, that doesn't matter what you do with your body, as long as your soul is okay. If your soul's in good shape, if your soul is saved, well, then eat, drink, and be merry, right? Your body's just going to pass away anyway. Might as well use it to its maximum capacity while you've got it. I spent years serving in youth and college ministry, and I just want you all to know that this way of thinking is still very much alive in the church, that our bodies don't matter. I can't tell you how many teenagers, college students, and even middle-aged adults I've known, people who've been Christians their whole lives, but they engage in all sorts of destructive behaviors, believing it had no impact on their spiritual lives. I'm talking like binge drinking, drug use, porn addiction, casual sex with multiple partners. And when I'd ask these folks how that affected their spiritual lives, they'd swear that the two were unrelated. Me and, me and God, we're good. I said a prayer at Bible camp when I was like 10 and took care of my soul. I know where my soul's going. So it doesn't matter what I do with my body. That's Gnosticism. <laughs> or at least that's one extreme form of it. On the other extreme, we kind of have the opposite. This hard separation of body and soul can also lead to extreme self-denial, a lot of shame rooted in our bodies. Some in the ancient world would go without food and water. They wouldn't bathe or groom themselves. Why waste time caring for the body if it's just going to pass away, if the soul is what matters? Some would even inflict harm on themselves tortured themselves, essentially to prove to the gods that their bodies didn't matter. Now, how rampant is that in the church? Think about the shame that is deeply rooted in our bodies for so many of us. Everything from body image issues to purity culture to the ways we can be so quick to downplay people's physical needs in favor of the spiritual A young girl is sexually assaulted, and the first question we ask is, what was she wearing? As if the problem is somehow rooted in her body and not the hatred and violence of her attacker. We tell people not to trust their bodies. We promote and celebrate leaders in the church who sacrifice their own physical and mental health for the sake of the gospel. 
And at various points in Christian history, this tendency to downgrade the body has taken some especially heinous forms. Think about Christian plantation owners before the Civil War who would treat people like objects, treat their bodies like they owned them, buying them, selling them, beating them, working them within an inch of their lives, but of course giving them off on Sunday morning so they could go to church. Bit of a disconnect there. Or think about many of our ancestors, our Christian ancestors, and what they did to the native inhabitants of this land. Stealing their territory, desecrating their sacred spaces, even committing genocide, but not until we've sent in Christian missionaries to save their souls. Do you see how dangerous this dualistic thinking that separates the soul from the body can be in its extreme forms? I'm seeing some nodding, so I'll keep going. (laughs) Now, luckily, you won't find this way of thinking in your Bibles, believe it or not. This human equals body and soul stuff is totally foreign to ancient Jewish and early Christian consciousness. In fact, the word that often gets translated soul in our Bibles blows this whole way of thinking completely out of the water. The Hebrew word for soul is nefesh. Let me hear you all say nefesh. Nefesh. Very good pronunciation. Nefesh in Hebrew is not the immaterial half of ourselves, what we would call a soul. Nefesh means something that's alive, a creature, something that moves and breathes, an animated living being. That's a nefesh. That's a soul. Whenever you come across the word soul in the Old Testament, that's what it's talking about. So biblically speaking, You don't have a soul so much as you are a soul. You are a living, moving, thinking, feeling being. Let me show you how this plays out in our Bibles a bit. Um, You can go to actually the first page of your Bibles. The word nefesh pops up really early. Genesis 1, beginning in verse 20. This is the fifth day of creation. It'll be on the screens as well. And God said... Let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the dome of the sky. So God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves of every kind with which the waters swarm, and every winged bird of every kind, and God saw that it was good. The phrase living creatures that I've underlined on the screen, that's the Hebrew word nefesh, soul. Let the waters bring forth swarms of living souls. And let birds fly about the earth across the dome of the sky. So God created the great sea monsters and every living soul that moves of every kind. Then again in verse 24 of Genesis 1. And God said, Let the earth bring forth nefesh, souls, living creatures of every kind, cattle and creeping things and wild animals of the earth of every kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals of the earth of every kind and the cattle of every kind and everything that creeps upon the ground of every kind. 
and God saw that it was good. Birds and fish and cattle and creeping things, everything that lives and moves on this planet is a living, breathing soul. The next time someone asks you if you think your pet has a soul, you can say, my pet is a soul. The Bible tells me so, right? Unless you have a pet rock. (laughs) Jury's still out on that. Not very animated. Anyway. This nefesh idea, though, it's not limited to animals. It gets applied to the animals first, but it also pops up in relation to us. I want to jump ahead to the passage Dick read for us a few minutes ago. Genesis 2, beginning in verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth and no herb on the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no one to till the ground. But a stream would rise from the earth and water the whole face of the ground, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. The man became a soul. Nefesh. Remember that old formula we looked at at the outset for what a human is made out of? Human equals body plus soul. Guys, remember that? Yes, okay, good. It was like five minutes ago. Excellent. Here in the opening chapters of Genesis, we find a radical alternative. Soul equals dust plus breath. God forms a man out of the dust of the earth. And then God breathes the breath of life into that man. And the man becomes a nefesh, a living soul. You are not an immaterial spirit that is accidentally trapped in a physical body. You're something far more compelling than that. You are a living being, molded from the dust of the earth by the hands of your creator and brought to life by the breath of God. That's how the Bible answers the question, what are we made of? Human beings are one part dust, One part breath of God, a living soul. If that was our starting point for thinking about some of these questions, for thinking about ourselves, for thinking about salvation and the hope we have in Christ, I think that would cause a dramatic shift in how we talk about this stuff. For one, the resurrection of Jesus makes a lot more sense. Why do the gospel writers go to such lengths to display the physicality of the risen Christ. Have you ever noticed this? Like in these accounts at the end of the Gospels, Jesus is doing so much physical stuff. He eats with people. He cooks for them. He embraces them. He walks with them uh, along a road. He breaks bread. He lets them touch him. He has scars. Why are all these descriptions of Jesus post-resurrection so physical? Well, maybe because the resurrection is an affirmation of our physical existence. It's an affirmation of our embodied lives here on earth. There were plenty of religions in the ancient world promising a disembodied afterlife. 
Christianity promises the resurrection of the body. This flesh and blood, formed from the dust of the earth, will one day be reborn and made new, brought to completion by the same God who breathed us into existence. This also means that we better have a holistic understanding of salvation, at least as holistic as what we find in the Bible. For ancient Israel, salvation meant union with God, of course. It meant reconciliation with their maker. But it also meant liberation from slavery. It meant return from exile. It meant uh, justice for the poor. It meant peace. Salvation wasn't just something the Israelites were waiting for someday after death. It was a reality that was becoming more and more evident as they journeyed with God through life. This means that the physical work can't be separated from the spiritual. Hunger is a spiritual problem. Poverty is a spiritual problem. School shootings are a spiritual problem. War, pollution, the breakdown of the family, these are all spiritual problems. And if the salvation we're preaching doesn't touch those, there's a hole in our gospel. But what about when our bodies do begin to fail us? When our bones ache and our minds begin to fade? When the medications and the ailments begin piling up? When our bodies begin to feel like a prison and we long to be free? What hope do we find in this shift of thinking for all of that? I don't know that I can answer that question in full. Maybe I haven't lived long enough. But as I wrestled with this over the last few days, I was reminded of my first car, which sounds really random, but stick with me. My first car that I bought in 2006 for a couple hundred bucks was a 1991 Infiniti G20 that had over 200,000 miles on it. This car had been used and abused by the time I picked it up, but I loved that car. Aaron and I went on our first date in that car. I drove cross-country for the first time in that car. I got my first speeding ticket in that car. There were a lot of memories in that car. But as it approached 250,000 miles, The car started to nickel and dime me a bit, as you might have guessed. The transmission went, the air conditioning stopped working, the car just wasn't able to do what it used to do. And finally one day I was driving along and the axle of the car cracked. I literally drove the car into the ground. But I still really love that car. I think our bodies work kind of like that. There are memories etched in our flesh and bones. Memories that are never going to be forgotten. These hands that give us arthritis pain now, they're the same hands that comforted our children when they were young. They're the same hands that held a loved one who is now gone. Our bodies are a vital part of our lives as living souls. We use our bodies to pray. We use our bodies to show love to one another, 
to stand against injustice, to make things, to fix things, and to bring comfort. While it might feel like our bodies are betraying us today, these are the same bodies God has been working through for our whole lives. And God is still working through our bodies. Nothing, not age or sickness or even death itself can take that away. Because God is not done with our bodies. The resurrection of Christ gives us hope for our bodies. The promise that someday God will redeem this flesh and bones. God will reform them from the dust of a new creation and enliven them with his spirit once again. Let's pray. Creator God, you are the one who called us into being. You are the one who molded us from the dust of the earth and enlivened us with your breath. You made us flesh and blood, body and soul, imperfections and all. Thank you for the gift of our embodied existence, Lord. Help us to appreciate it. Help us to stand against those who would seek to denigrate or exploit it. Help us to live in harmony with our bodies. And thank you for the promise of resurrection. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.